from HerbMentor.com. This is HerbMentor Radio. You are listening to HerbMentor Radio and HerbMentor.com. I'm John Gallagher. Today I am live in person with Heidi Bohan. Heidi has over 18 years experience working as an educator of native plants, horticulture, woodworking, ethnobotany, and traditional ecological knowledge of the Pacific Northwest. Heidi has been a carpenter, fine woodworker, architectural designer, and as a teacher has taught classes in basketry, carving, weaving, edible medicinal plants, and more. She has worked with many local tribes as an, instru- as, an, as an instructor and mentor for the Northwest Indian College. Heidi is author of a new book, The People of Cascadia, Pacific Northwest Native American History. It's an incredible living work with over 300 pen and ink illustrations depicting the daily life of the four major cultural groups of the Pacific Northwest. It was reviewed by tribal members and cultural experts and approved for the school social studies curricula here in Washington State. You can visit Heidi online anytime you want at Heidi Bohan, that's B-O-H-A-N, dot com. Heidi, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. <laughs> and I should say thanks for welcoming, welcoming, welcoming me because we're sitting in a historical farmhouse that, that you live in here in Carnation, Washington, which also happens to be the town I live, just a stone's throw from here. Um, and uh, among... Everything else, you know, Heidi manages and organizes our local farmer's market, which is, I think, I'm biased, and probably you are too, but I think it's the best I've ever seen. It's a, people call it a gem of a farmer's market, so I think it's a very special market myself. Thank you. It is, it is. And it's it's only a block from my house too, which Mm -hmm. is awesome. Oh yeah, that's lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Heidi, you know, I met you 15 years ago in Wilderness Awareness School. Can you believe it's been that long? No, uh, yes, actually, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Getting used to that idea. <laughs> well, Wilderness Awareness School, when you first moved out here to Washington, and, and not too long after that, maybe a couple years after, you started a little group called the Catkin Moon Medicine Society, which I was a part of. And it was really a group of folks interested in studying the native uses of our native plants, uh, kind of from a cultural perspective, uh, especially. And what struck me was that, you know, you were just learning along with everyone else, and you showed me that you don't really have to be just an expert to jump in and start learning to involve a community of people in what you're passionate about. And, um, you know, that never really seems to be an issue for you, nothing really holding you back from delving, delving from delving in and learning something. So what I was curious about is, what first inspired you to delve into plants and native culture? Hmm. Oh, that's a big question. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. We've got time. That's what's cool. We, we, yeah. don't, we don't have any commercial yeah. breaks or anything. We yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Um, so the native plants and native culture actually was inspired by the early movement of native plant knowledge in the uh, 90s. And uh, Art Krukeberg, I went and saw a talk by him. He, I call him the father of native plants in this area, Mm -hmm. and got into helping out with the native plant restoration sites and some of the salvage operations. And in that time, someone gave me a photocopied edition of the Ethnobotany of Western Washington. And I'd also met and married Ralph Bennett at that time, who's a Haida Native American woodcarver and storyteller. So with my combined 
um, knowledge of horticulture, having worked in nurseries and done organic gardening since I was about 16, uh, it was a pretty easy leap into uh, tying it together with Native American uh, use of the plants and the, the plants themselves, getting to know what they were and where they grew and how they fit. Hmm. So, um, but, you know, what really struck me is that you would um, seek out mentors, you would you could go to a cultural exhibit at a, a, a museum, for example, and just figure out how to make these various... I mean, I was yeah. like, you had uh, nets you made and yeah. traps and yeah. all kinds of... So I had a unique... Figure that out. <laughs> I had a unique situation in that Ralph and I um, uh, moved into a park in Redmond as artist-in-residence, and there was a studio there where he carved and did storytelling events, and I got involved with... Uh, creating some native plant gardens there and working with the school groups that came through. And so as a result of working with school groups and just the general public who were interested, that gave me a reason to begin to experiment and and to teach back. So pretty quickly after going to a few ethnobotany talks and a few local presentations, I realized Mm -hmm. that that knowledge was not being very, there wasn't much out there. So and and I started to see where there was a lot of errors in the information. So hmm. I think that gave me the courage to to move forward and and having Ralph there and then native other native family members and people to talk to to bounce this off of uh, to make sure I was understanding it correctly or um, even talking about it correctly helped a lot. And and so I used to do a Thursday I think it was Thursday nights at Slough House Park where. Uh, I always said I was one week ahead of everybody else, and mm-hmm. we just did a we did a hands-on, whatever kind of the group wanted to do, and and we mostly did basketry, but we did do things like net making mm-hmm. or cattail mat making, something that was usually of my interest, something that I was pursuing, and I would then, so that gave me the excuse, the catalyst, and there's a real. Um, you know, they say the fastest way to learn is to teach something. So, mm-hmm. so I really felt like over those four years of living at the park and being in that position, I just fast tracked this information. And I also was a you know a student who loved learning in school. Um, you know, I was the straight A kid, and mm. and um, I ended up you know not finishing school just because the systems weren't there for someone like myself at that time. But um, I think that was a big advantage, and I even say that to kids in school. You know, I feel like my life's a great big school report, um, <laughs> you know, and that you know, all these grants that I've used for my projects and stuff—that's all just a great big report um, presentation to get people to fund what you do, or um, which is the people of Cascadia. The book is a result of a, a grant that yeah. um, that actually spun off of other grants that I'd written for developing curriculum with school districts and uh, activities for teachers to implement. And and those kits are still out there being used by schools and parks. And But those teachers would ask me, what can we use to teach with? And what book is there? And I actually ended up, you know, there really isn't anything. I don't know what to recommend did, to you. Did you find a lot of the books that were out there um, maybe put together by maybe more academic um, type of ethnobotanists that maybe weren't connected to actual Well, there was in many ways to answer that. One, there was a real emphasis on northern tribes. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of information on northern tribes. There's a lot of um, books that specialize on the art or maybe the stories, but 
um, even even with the northern tribes, there aren't a lot of books that talk about the daily life of the in a historical context of how the people lived. And so that became the focus of this book was a local look, you know, not mm-hmm. just the northern tribes, and comprehensive about their the the way they lived. You could find that information if you researched. If you were a researcher, and you could get it from this book and that book and this resource. But these were all, like you said, these were academic studies and certainly not something a teacher or or even a a student or even someone new to the state that wants to learn more or just wants to learn more isn't going to have the kind of um, wherewithal to go to the libraries and go to the museums and and get that comprehensive look. And even if they did, wouldn't know if it was accurate or not because that ends up being one of the biggest issues is you can read one thing here and one thing there, and it can be the opposite. And you've got to be able to determine which is the truth. And so, um, so that led to that. So this so. So this woman of Scottish descent settles yes. in the Pacific Northwest yes. and literally records and and to revive the, con- the connection with the cultural roots of a lot of Native people around here. You know, when I when I announced my my marriage to Ralph, my mom actually pointed out that. Um, here was this Northwest Coast um, Irish Scottish person marrying a Northwest Coast, uh. and you know, and that was that was really a kind of a, a first alert for me that, that w- there wasn't that much difference really in terms of landscape between my ancestors and Northwest Coast people here. We were on waters. We were hunting whale. We were using the sea as a primary food source. And um, so there are just a lot of commonalities between our culture. Salmon was big. They make haggis here? No. (laughs) 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 We're just talking to people on the prairie here, but there's something like that. Bagpipes? Are there bagpipers? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, but just in terms of use of food, and actually when I did go to Scotland and Ireland, there are so many commonalities in the plants. I felt like I was in familiar Mm -hmm. land. It was just, you know, different uh, species, but same types of plants. You know, I, I noticed the same them. thing in Ireland, like, uh, when I was in the northwest coast. I was also, it's interesting that you say that, because I get a little chills up my spine, because it's like, I was attracted of all places in the world to go travel when I was in my mid-20s and had the ability to do that. Yeah, <laughs> I went right. to the, Ireland for a year and was in the coastal that. area, and here I ended yeah. up in the north. And I remember coming out here the first time in Washington, and I thought to myself, I love this place, because it's a connection, it's like a cross between... Ireland and Alaska. It's like Ireland with trees. <laughs> That's pretty good. I agree. <laughs> you know, yeah. even the weather. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, on that note, I there was a period when I was really wishing I could live in Ireland. I, mm. I you know, after I'd spent some time there and came back and I longed for that. I longed to live in a land that my ancestors had been from and and um, and and actually since I was so deeply involved at that point in native culture, there is that. There's definitely a uh, almost an apology to be that involved because I'm def- I don't look native. I you know I mm. I um, I'm clearly I don't have you know one thirty second ancestry. Right. I, you know I don't have any claim to it, and um, and yet here I was immersed in the information. And so having got, you know I, I kind of I missed that that I didn't get to live in a land where my ancestors came from. And I was speaking to my daughter about it one day that, you know, I'd love to live in Ireland, but I don't know what I would do. And she just looked at me kind of surprised and said, well, you do what you're doing now. And that was a huge statement for me. That was a real epiphany of, of course, I'd be a plant person there. I would be a, 
I would be a person that was carrying on, passing on what the culture, cultural, traditional knowledge is there. I would be teaching, I would be an herbalist and and, um, a basket maker and all those things. And so that helped me claim my, my right to have that knowledge in this land that I live in now and that I am honoring the ancestors of this land by learning from them. Mm. They're the ones who, they've lived here for 10,000 years or longer, and who better to learn from than Mm -hmm. from those ancestors? And I felt that strongly even before my trip to Ireland. And when I do teach the basketry and the traditional skills, you know, I have a lot of students who come back the next week and they've branched into a whole new technique and a whole new form, which I think's nice. I think Mm -hmm. that's... uh, great, but my personal choice is to stay with the traditional techniques until I figure out why they're why they were done. That sometimes and sometimes it'll be years before I'll figure out why did why would you do that particular technique when it seems like it'd be faster this way or whatever. Uh-huh. And and usually sometimes it'll take me years to finally go, aha, I figure I, I understand that now why that would be the better way to do that. So um, so anyway there's I just I feel like um, we, even though if we don't have native ancestry in this land, I think we have the cultural memory of of living in connection with the land, and that's what people are called to um, when they get involved with the work that I do. Yeah, it's like I, I find that when people work with plants, it's like they, it's like they, they're really interested in it, but they don't know why. Yeah. Like why? Why do I want to make this? Yeah. You know this this herbal remedies. I mean, I. It's like I, uh, it's, it's not, it's, you know, it's like there's just something in them that, that drives them to it that they've been doing for, since ancient times, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was Catkin Moon as well. So Catkin Moon was made up of people that at the ends of the workshops that I would do, mm-hmm. I would see these faces looking at me like, now what do I do? Like, you just inspired me, and now what do I do? Like, this almost panic look in their eye, like, well, you're not just going to leave, are you? And, and uh, so from those people, I just to say, there had to be some way to offer them something where they could incorporate this into their life, because mm-hmm. they clearly wanted to incorporate this into their life. And so Catkin Moon was based on the study of native plants in all of their uses, not just for basketry, not just for medicine, not just for food. We tend to kind of compartmentalize how we learn things. And and uh, so I that was that was the focus of that, and to do it throughout the seasons. I When I first conceived the idea... I was going to have people sign up for a year, but I wasn't sure I could get people to sign up for a mm-hmm. year. So I just did it um, from equinox to solstice to solstice mm-hmm. to equinox in That's quarters. Right. And and uh, I really think I probably could have got people to sign up for a year because many wouldn't. stayed on. For, yeah, <laughs> I did they stayed two on. or so quarters, yeah. three quarters. Yeah, and I had people yeah. staying on for two years or so. Yeah. And I run into them now, and they, they do say that they definitely made it part of their life in one form or the other. So I would say that, too. Is, um, you know, I was studying at Ravencroft, and there were some traditions I was learning there. Like, you know, I was learning medicine making, and it was definitely involved with seasonal cycles and gardening and stuff. But there's something about when we were working with you where we would go out, and we would go to a sal- salvage site and, and harvest maybe Oregon grape or something mm-hmm. from a, a place that was going to be bulldozed down. And, or we would, you would show us artifact trees where cedar planks were mm-hmm. harvested for homes. Mm-hmm. Um, we would go to all these 
places. And I just put it into this context of sense of place and connection to the past. And that was really powerful. Mm. That's neat to hear. Yeah, once a month we did an excursion, and mm-hmm. then I did a workshop that tied to the excursion. Right. Mm-hmm. And I tried to make it relevant so that would be seasonal. And and I started this new group, the Gather to Gardener group, and we were doing the same thing, and that was every other week as well. Mm-hmm. And, and really the expeditions, I think, are the most inspiring for people, and to take people to different ecosystem types and mm-hmm. and um, then um, you know paint the picture of what what that how that ecosystem fit into the human and so that's another piece here i think that's uh, important is that we as a culture have um really focused on the study of plants or the study mm-hmm. of uh, you know in the scientific way and in in that process removed ourselves from being part of it and mm-hmm. so when i i actually had one woman in catkin moon who at the end of the classes would be so emotional she'd be you know crying and i finally asked her she'd been involved with the native plant society for years and had gone on all the walks and um you know really participate and i finally asked her one time because that's pretty much what i thought i was doing is taking people out on walks and we're doing plant id and then we do these activities mm-hmm. and i asked her one time why is this so emotional for you i you know what is that that what's triggering that and she said kind of in this almost awed voice she said you let us touch them. <laughs> and that was a wow. big deal for me to wow. really get that. Yeah, because uh, we even do that as educators. And I, and I actually, when I do trainings for teachers and um, naturalists and the like, um, I, I tell them, you know, when you take these school groups out, 30 kids or so, you know, we have all these rules. Stay on the trail, don't mm-hmm. pick the plants, mm-hmm. you know. And, and we're doing that. We have this set of reasons we're doing that. But we don't explain that to the kids. And I've gone into groups of kids where they're afraid to touch plants. They're afraid to go off the trail because it hasn't been properly explained to them why. And and so I started adding into that when I tell kids, well, they can't go off the trail and, you know, you need, need to let me be at the front and all that. I'll say, but some other time come back here on your own or with your parents and definitely go off trail and definitely pick some plants and 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 explore this place you know because that's the best way you're going to get to know this land so that i think we just get ingrained in this stay on the trail don't touch just look you know Gosh. and um we don't really engage <laughs> i and think so, going out to eastern washington with you to up tanham ridge we were yeah, up and we were digging up right. <laughs> and <laughs> learning yeah. about and we even went to the um what are the set place the, um, oh, uh, where the herbariums were, the, the arboretum. Oh, the Yakima arboretum. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. could go and see the plants and yeah. yeah, and compare them right there. But that really, when you did that, it really showed me the mentoring. It really showed me that, wow, look at this multifaceted study. It's like you would mm-hmm. go to the uh, arboretum and to the herbariums and check the plant and make sure it was this one. Yes. And then you would go with maps and find the places and you go out and then learn about it. All the aspects before getting to yeah. harvesting and sharing yeah. and everything. And so that, that does come to the research piece. I have figured out that not everybody likes to research. Right. And, and I do. I love researching. We're sitting in my library. That's right beautiful. Now. I know where this and, whole, was this wonderful little alcove room on the second floor overlooking this uh, tree farm and an old barn and this is a you know eight, late 19th century house yeah 1907, yeah. 1907. Yeah. it's beautiful and i've got i don't know two 300 books in here and um and i don't you know i and i'll you know i don't mind going to archives and digging around and pulling out that info and 
so and not everybody wants to take that time so that that becomes the reason why you know i'm one week ahead of people or one right. month or one year you know and and uh it's just because i think of the ability to focus on that so i remember the time too when you were uh we were doing cottonwood salve, uh-huh. and you're actually just like, "Well, we're going to make it in lard." And he started talking about how a native person would have made it, like not just do this beeswax and yeah, and olive, olive oil, oil, but we're actually yeah. let's think about how this would have been done before pressed olive oil in the area, yeah, yeah. and how restored, like in the um, bulbs of the bullwhip kelp you right. were talking about. Right. You and, remember all that? Oh, I do. I, I remember like it was yesterday. <laughs> and for for the listeners, the um, lard is the equivalent is. Very Bear grease, mm-hmm. um, which you know, bear and pigs have similar um, body types, as do we. You know, we're all very closely right. related, and that was the other piece on that. So yeah, but I do have done workshops where um, I have to. Usually, I also have the olive oil alternative because there are people that still view lard or mm-hmm. something as, as not so good. So, um, <laughs> but that's the traditional uh, counterpart right there. How, how is the work? You've been doing, because um, I know when you're married to Ralph uh, Bannon-Hazhaida, um, which is, uh, just so folks know, who don't know where that uh, those uh, those pe- first peoples lived, was uh, islands, um, kind of um, right, off Canada, right off Canada near the Washington border, right? Canada and Alaska. Uh, they they okay. actually are dual citizens, because okay. uh, Prince of Wales Island is, is and Queen Charlotte right. are the two islands the Haida people live on, and... And uh, Prince of Wales is um, Alaskan, I believe, and uh, uh, Queen Charlotte is BC. So, so the work you're doing here, then, um, having limited experience over the years in working with um, dif- different uh, Native American elders or leaders over the years, of my years of wilderness awareness, just knowing that sometimes that can be a, a touchy areas, um, sharing culture and all with yeah. people and so how has how has the work you've been doing been received by the local elders when they look at this book and they work with you like how is how's that well that's, that's, probably that's a perfect question no actually that one is <laughs> great because i've had elders look at it right and um and i and tribal members look at it and say just like thumb through the pages we had such a beautiful culture and that, to me, was the most gratifying thing to see, that that's what this book conveyed to them, was the very thing I was trying to convey, which is this was a beautiful, complex, intact culture prior to, to European contact. And and even the front cover conveys that with mm. Bill Holmes' wonderful painting with the back of the Nuchanolf man in his canoe, you know, a fully intact culture, totally sustainable, healthy, beautiful, mm. looking at that first sail as it ap- arrives on the horizon of a, of a Spanish galleon or a, I don't think that might be Cook's um, sail as mm. it comes on, on the shoreline. So that's what I try to convey. And those same elders then will buy 15 of them to give to their ch- their grandchildren for Christmas. And that is that is the greatest reward for me to get that kind of... Um, response to it from native people. This book is not intended for native people, you know. I, 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 but my measure of it being successful was that if a native person read it, that what I wrote in there was true to them, was was correct. Mm-hmm. Not that an academic 
would look at it and find it correct. That's not my first priority that academics or cultural experts look at it and say it's correct. So if I know there's a controversy, and there are some controversies about things like uh, was the horse present in the Yakima culture prior to this? Oh. You know, and if the that if those people, there are people that believe the horse was present. I'm going to say that in this book. You know, right. I'm not going to I'm not going to dispute that or, or say that that's not true. Uh, I'm just going to say that there is that belief that that is the case. And same with the different theories about how people arrived here in the Northwest. Um, I can remember the first time I told said something to Ralph about the land bridge theory and how people came over on the land bridge, and he just mm. he just was like, "Oh no, they they didn't. We didn't come over that way. We've been here for thirty. My grandma says we've been here thirty thousand years or longer." Mm. And um, I actually laughed when he told me that. I thought he was kidding, and then I felt kind of sorry for him because um, <laughs> that he didn't know better. And, um, and then and then I started realizing that every time you hear the land bridge theory. Alright, it's a theory. It's a theory. And that was 15 years ago. Um, And since then, the land bridge theory is now quite debunked as the primary way that people came over um, from uh, the uh, Asian continent or arrived here. And to me, one of the most fascinating aspects of that is the, 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 the research that has disproven it has been as the primary way. It's not to say that wasn't one way they came Mm -hmm. over is the fact that they're finding 30,000-year-old archaeological sites in scattered places around North and South America wow. that debunk the 10,000-year-old land bridge theory. Right. And that his grandma had said that 30,000 years ago. We've well, been here since 30,000. And, and knowing, but it is known as well, that Haida would, would row in canoes as yes. far as Hawaii, right, yeah. at least? And further. And Ralph's and dad used to say that. Um Ralph's dad is Kwan Kilt Kwan, and uh, he's passed on now. But he told me, you talk about, they could go out in their canoes, and they would use the oil in a clamshell. And he didn't mention, but I've since learned that that would include a piece of metal that Mm -hmm. would then give directional to the North Pole. Mm. And so he said, we use oil in the clamshell and the knowledge of the ocean depths to find our way. He said, we knew the ocean floor like you know mountain ranges, and we could just find where we were as we were traveling around. And that, again, is how the Polynesians travel. I mean, that's that's a known way to travel, that you just know how deep it is below you with whatever method you use. And so, yeah, I've had Makai elders tell me that they've been trading with the Chinese for 3,000 years, and and there's, you know, Chinese artifacts found in... in um, in burial sites or in archaeological sites that oh, really? predate, yeah. So you go out to the Ozette site and you'll find bamboo in the Ozette site, which was buried prior European contact. They had the use of the word iron prior to European contact, and wow. I mean, there's just um, you know, there's extensive information to, to say that there was something going on um, with inner with trade. I mean, I, I actually at this point I think it's pretty. Well accepted that there was something going on prior to European contact. That's um, yeah. really amazing. So that's what I, when when you know meeting you and, and listening just of the times that we were teaching or we were out, it just always would just uh, just blow my mind. To other all the things that you know, it was a lot of like a perspective thing, you mm-hmm. know. And um, one of the things I remember, uh, oh my gosh, I don't know what. If it was you or Tanya, but it was definitely you were involved with that at the time, saying that the um, 
the not to say the native name, um, but the um, for around here for the Plant Devils Club. Mm. That in the native language, it would somehow translate or something to like the most sacred thing or mm-hmm. something like that, or medicine or powerful. Yeah. And, and when and when I heard that, and I thought, oh, here's the, you know. The European pioneers coming over and grabbing this unfamiliar thing, going, "Ah, it's Devil's Club," and then mm-hmm. you have the people living here calling it the most sacred. Yeah, that the perspective just shifted yeah. the whole world. Just shifted around. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I see. And it was like, wasn't like Trillium? Like, was it the Eye of the Transformer or something? Oh, yeah, I think I that is that one. That was like <laughs> Trillium, which is... Th- well, when it comes to plants, I do. Yeah, like a three good. three leaves, Trillium, yeah. makes sense. Yeah. But then the Eye of the Transformer was uh, like, oh, my gosh, that's so cool. <laughs> and Transformer's big here in the Snoqualmie Valley. Really? You know, the, the, uh, he's Star Child. Um, mm. Moon, he's the moon. So, And you were talking about perspective. So um, one of the things that was a big perspective shift for me was how we view the land here. Mm. So when I, you know, when I talked to Ralph or some other family members, they'd always be talking about going, you know, here we are um, maybe north of Seattle, and they'd be talking about going up to Seattle and over to... They kept refi- directionally. Things were never what I would think of right. as up or down. And, and I realized we view the map only with north as the, <sighs> right. as the up and the south as the down. And from a traditional perspective, up was the mountains and down was to the sea. Mm -hmm. So I did my maps in the book, and I started using that in my teachings as well. I shifted the maps around so that up, our north, was actually the top of the Cascade Range. And then the Puget Sound was down. And um, so you'll see that in the book. And I have teachers comment on that still. They like that I kept that in the book, that we oh. still have that up and down, that sort of whole shift in how we view the land. I, I have so. a friend who grew up on Mount Rainier, mm-hmm. and I remember him. I could never get used to that. He said, we'd be here, and now Mount Rainier from where we're sitting is south. And he'd always mm-hmm. be like, I'm going to go back up to Rainier. Uh-huh. And I'd be like, but it's down. He goes, yeah. no, it's up. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah, of course it's up. <laughs> yeah, so people who live with the land, <laughs> not a map, uh, <laughs> When the they, ski area, yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, lots of cool ways to, and that and that's I think that's relevant. That's part of what this is about. Is this isn't just a study for the sake of a study? Mm-hmm. It's how do you make this relevant? So yeah, like so for those studying about herbs and wanting to bring them into their lives and bring plants, and we say not just using them for medicine, but like mm-hmm. that's what I never really had the perspective as well. When I saw you making a cat, you know, cattails, yeah. You know, dug them up and made flower pancakes and all this kind of stuff with them, but you were making mats out of them. And then there, then there was all these other, uh, especially cedar. So I, I could get into a few plants here, and cedar's yeah. probably the best one to see start with um, because when you uh, mentioned that it uh, first heard from you that it was the um, tree of life mm-hmm. in this area. So what about like, that perspective and the connection to the plants the natives had here and how it infused in their day-to-day life? Hmm. So they, that's western red cedar is what yeah. we're talking about here. I know there's cedars, other cedars are, um, in different parts of the country, but western red cedar is pretty specific to this area, mm-hmm. you know, this region. And um, it really came into play about 5,000 years ago is when it really shows up in the pollen record. It's becoming a big part of the life here maybe longer, 
and so um, um, the uses of it. So it, it you know, and I actually think and this is one of the plants I actually use as an example of. I think the people's use of the plant may well have helped it become even more useful to the people. Just that mm-hmm. relationship between this plant and the people. It, it, this is a plant that's, that that splits easily every part of it. Mm-hmm. So uh, it 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 the bark splits into these beautiful strips that make wonderful baskets and cordage. The the roots split into fiber that you can use for the baskets that are waterproof, and the the boughs twist and twine into something that makes them the strongest cordage in the world. And and of course the wood splits in these amazing planks that you, know, you can take a cedar tree and put use uh, you know wedges and split planks that are you know several inches thick and you know 20, 30 feet long that are used on the plank houses. So. Uh, every aspect of that plant was just it was manageable it was it would made itself available mm-hmm. and uh so and then it its boughs itself are considered the smudge here used in ceremony and and for purification and for cleansing you know as part of the whole, people's cleansing ceremonies so it was just imbued and it was just surround and of mm-hmm. course it's this most beautiful regal tree when you see it and used for the canoes you know it's buoyant you know filled with air bubbles and mm-hmm. so the planks you know not only was it easy to split but it was lightweight and filled with air bubbles which makes it buoyant and um, uh, insulating so, right so the three to four inches thick for these planks that they were used on the roofs and the walls actually well, I was uh, it's not totally surprised, but I loved the link to find that that's exactly the thickness of wood if you want wood for solar mass. If you want to use wood for solar mass mm-hmm. in, a, in a solar house, passive solar house, you use wood three to four inches thick. Any less or any more doesn't, is not effective. So, um, and, so here they made their whole houses with these three to four inches. Without planks. cutting the tree down or killing the tree. Well, um, they could cut the tree down, and frankly, I think trees fall down. Right, you know? true. I mean, there's so much uh, wood, wood yeah. falling in wintertime here that um, I don't think there was a whole lot of net need for cutting trees down, unless you were sounding for a, you wanted to get a tree that was sounded for a canoe or something. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, But I suspect a lot of material was taken from trees that tipped over. We see that quite a bit um, here. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you would have to, you could take planks from a live tree, and that was done, but um, you could also get them from one that had fallen. Wow! And cedar cedar bark as well. So right, right, right. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so other uh, so what about some other plants that strike you that are from from this area? I mean, I um, well, one I'm thinking I'll bring up the one thing <laughs> is uh, like um, salal, mm-hmm. um, which uh, yeah, once you. That you know about Salau and the connection and uses to that, because that was a real eye opener for me too. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, Salau, which is an understory plant that it's it's so adaptable. In some places, it only grows two or three inches tall. It's just right. low ground cover. Or it mm-hmm. grows six to eight feet tall, given where what situation it's in, dry or wet or sun or um, shade, and with evergreen leaves, mm-hmm. which is. I think important because the leaves themselves are medicine. They can be used, chewed, and used as a poultice for uh, bleeding cuts mm-hmm. and infected cuts and um, um, colds, that kind of thing. 
And then um, the berry, and as a dye too, it makes kind of a gold dye. Right. I haven't used it much, but um, it's useful. But then the berry is really the the key element to the to the salal because the salal produces. In fact, it's on right now. I need to get out there because it's running a little late this year. So. And it's a relative of blueberry, so you can't imagine, folks. It's like a big blueberry leaf. <laughs> yeah. Kind well, of it's, it's actually relative. I don't know if they're all related, but it's it's Aracacea. in the Aracaceae. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so it's closely related to things like uh, madrone and right. um, uh, huckleberries. Huckleberries, uh-huh. yeah. So. Um, and so that, but it has a berry that's quite different than a blueberry. It has that little uh, crown on the end, or, or uh, and it's a little, uh, fuzzy. little fuzzy. It opens up. It's got something <laughs> odd at the end. So um, anyway, so those berries were gathered and crushed and dried into cakes, you know, mm-hmm. um, that were saved and stored. And they're preservative in themselves. They're sweet, and then they tend to preserve other berries. So, and I have some salad oh. cakes. Yeah, it's really. I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. I have a salad cake that I made as a demo, just a sample that I made in 1994 or something, and I used to keep it in a plastic bag, you know, take it out to show people, and I don't even bother anymore. And it does has it not molded? It still smells like you could eat it if it hadn't been handled by thousands of people. It is still an edible um, food. How how did you make it? I just take that's the thing. Um, so I always say, listen carefully here. You take the berries, you mash them, uh-huh. and you dry them. That's really it. Because <laughs> people are always like, okay, so now what you say? Like, they, they, they you be take more the berries, you, you mash, mash them. them. <laughs> and, and ideally, you dry them on skunk cabbage leaves or swamp lantern leaves, same plant, big, waxy-like leaves. Yeah. On cedar planks, mm-hmm. which help heat hold the heat mm-hmm. and um, hold that heat all night long, when you so that the next morning as the sun rises, you have this sort of steady drying. Oh, right. Cause... I found that dry dry twice as fast on a cedar plank as they do on a um, cookie sheet or something like that. It, it doesn't matter, folks, if you're not from the Northwest, how dry of a day we had at the peak <laughs> of summer. When you wake up in the morning, there's going to be a layer of mist and more water on the lawn. <laughs> Yeah. Very few people water their lawns around. <laughs> At least I know. <laughs> and uh, and then that was uh, traditionally. Uh, can you say something like, uh, "Well, okay, that was dipped in oligan oil, and that's from yeah. a whale." No, that's oh. from smelt. That's from oh. a species of smelt. I don't know the scientific name on that one um, by heart. Um, it's in the book, mm-hmm. but, um, also called candlefish. Oh. They would run the rivers here by the cabillions. I mean, oh. they just ran the rivers. They still run the rivers down in Cowlitz and then up north. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually have heard some interesting, uh, elders talking about, I heard a panel of elders from the, um, Nutka or Clinket people talking about how we needed to respect these, smelt better as they were coming up the rivers because they would send up um, scouts. There were the males would come up the river first to check it out, and we're catching them right now. And we need to leave them alone so they can go back to the main group right. and bring them up river. And um, wow. so, yeah, so they attribute a lot of the failure and that we should not let dogs and women who are pregnant down on the river at that time because those are things that will deter the, the 
those scouts. And um, so just, you know, there's all this tradition that's, you know, there's the, they were, this was on a radio talk show asking people to, to honor these traditions so that the smelt will return. So anyway, we have a major decline in the smelt runs. And but they used to run the rivers, and I've actually been out there with the smelt uh, net and captured my own smelt. And so then they would be taken, <clears throat> they were called candlefish because they're so high in oil um, that you could take a dried smelt and light it and it will burn like a candle, My just goodness. a dried smelt. And But the oil itself could be rendered out by a, a, a rotting process where you let it partially ferment in a, in a pit or a canoe or something like that, and then you scoop off the, um, mm-hmm. the, the uh, oil. And done properly, you know, there, was, there was a standard that if it was done the best, if mm-hmm. it was a good olecan oil, it didn't have an odor. So even And I have olecan oil that I use that you do have a slight... A fermented smell to it, but I tell people if you can separate your nose from your taste buds, your nose tells you it's slightly fermented, but the taste is actually like butter. It's right. actually very a nice, pleasant taste. And so uh, berries were dipped in them. Dried, uh, I mean, berry cakes could be dipped in them or fresh berries. They're poured over everything. Um, when I go to the feast, they still have that at the traditional feast. They'll bring it in, and, and you'll watch elders pouring it over their um, mashed potatoes and anything wow. that's on the on the, their plate, and eat it that way. Between so, between that and salmon drying and yes. everything, there was a never a shortage of food. This has been the best place to live. Yeah. And think of the quality <laughs> of the food. When yeah. You think of so yeah. I got into the traditional foods piece because Ralph's family. They were all, in the, you know, I work, my primary work with the tribes right now is related to preventative health through traditional plants and oh. traditional foods. That's my primary work. Cool. Um, diabetes prevention is, is you know, at the forefront and, and heart disease and all those things, all of which are directly tied to nutrition and and this this use of food that's not part of their traditional diets. And so um, when I spotted that early on with Ralph and his dad had, and the time I was uh, married to him, we lost his dad and his mom, mm-hmm. both to diseases, diabetes and heart disease. And they, both of those people, when I talked to them about their illnesses, they attributed it to their their food. And they mm-hmm. spotted a period in time when they, uh, I think it was during an economic difficult time for them, where they were buying, they said, flats of eggs and 100-pound sacks of potatoes, and that's what they were eating. And and their health declined from that point on, and and uh, so and Ralph lost his older sister and older brother all in a very short period of time, and that alarmed all of us. And so and he was fit, you know that he's a fit yeah, person, very, and, yeah. and um and yet um, he wasn't eating right correctly, you know, for diabetes prevention. And so we I got into salal and olecan oil is the first thing salal cakes and olecan oil. I thought if we could just have that every day almost like medicine, that would be a start, and then start cutting back on the sugars and the, some of these other things. And Ralph is, you know, a healthy, robust, I think he, last time I talked to him, um, he's, you know, been checked and has no evidence of diabetes. And he's and near 60? He's past 60, past 60 yeah. yeah. So he's outlived his... Um, the brothers and sisters that had passed on before him. So and th- so that you know that was personal. That was very personal. But then on a much broader scale, you see that as just being epidemic within the tribes, and it's it's a tragedy, and it's related directly to food. And so that's the work we're doing right now. I'm I'm now with the Natural Resources Division with the Snoqualmie Tribe, and 
I was with their social services department for many years, just working with the youth and right. and families, and 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 we have done we we accomplished things like got food gardens in and changed food policies at our group gatherings where it's no longer white bread; it has to be whole grain, and and uh, you know there's a real and, and no pops and things like that. Right. So there has been a shift, and and. Um, now we're looking at restoration sites. That's the Natural Resources Division, where we are going to incorporate, try to rebuild the resources mm-hmm. for people to gather and harvest their traditional foods, starting with the berries. And, you know, berries is a really important food, and that's different than fruit, like palm fruits and bananas right. and things like that. Berries are a very different food right, right. So, um, nutritionally. So, um, so yeah, that's and that's really about making it relevant. That That's, you know... That's most of my work right now is how do we make this knowledge, this historical knowledge that we have, and make it relevant. And I know that's your work too, right. the medicine, you know, right. the the plant medicine. And right, because when I when I started first started hanging out with Wilderness Awareness School in the early nineties, and I was out with John Young once, and he's like, "Oh, dandelion, you can eat it." And I actually I remember him saying that when I when I was out with him in high school when I was like fifteen, and he did a, <laughs> he did a class at my high school, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, but it was always this thing in a book. And it would always be like, oh, Native people used it for this, this, and this. And when that, when I started bring, when it started becoming alive and infused in my life, and then I went, oh, my mm-hmm. gosh. It was like that whole turnaround. Like, it's mm-hmm. no longer, so, you know, in a book or something that people did. And it was something yeah. that people do and people need to, want to relearn, let's say re-educate yeah. ourselves yeah. as we once knew. Yeah. And, 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 and 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 like you said, diet, like diet, and and um, you know, just the way to take care of ourselves in our day to day first aid, and it's so yeah. simple. To so do. simple. And then I I recently did something um, for our local mm-hmm. group. I don't know if you were there for their transition group on. Um, uh, Kimberly would came. And yeah, did she that went. Group. That's yeah. right. And um, was, so it's first aid out of the box, something like that. Uh, uh, natural disasters out of the box is my was my talk. Nice. What if you don't have your box with you? Right. You know that box that we all set aside for the natural <laughs> the disaster. The band aids and the antibacterial yeah, and stuff. That was when the the thing had happened down in uh, wasn't Katrina the one down um, in Costa Rica. Um, Chile. No oh, uh, earthquake. What are we trying to say? Haiti. Haiti. Haiti yes, right. and um, and I, you know you saw that footage on TV and it was just it was. Yeah. It was horrible watching these people, and one of the one of the pieces of footage that I saw that so struck me was um, people in a park. They'd moved these seniors out of a senior center, had them all on beds out in this park, but no aid had come. It was now on day ten or something, and there had been no aid. And even though there had been very few real injuries, they now were infected. The cuts that were were infected. There had been no painkillers and no antibiotics, and they're in a park. And I'm looking around at all these plants at this park, and I'm thinking, does anybody there know how to use these plants? Right, right. I bet there's plants right there that they could use for antibiotic and pain relief. Of course. And, and and I did have a friend go down in that time frame, and she confirmed it. Yes, there's plants galore down there that could have been used, and no, people did not know how to use them. In a tropical area, there's more plants that want to grow all over there, there than anywhere. <laughs> and so that, that brought it back to me. So I used as my example in my talk here, I brought in Oregon grape, you know, that I just cut on the way to the, the presentation that night. It was just on the side of the road here, and we have huge stands of it. And I said... You know, this could be used for for all those purposes that yeah. we are talking about for um, 
um, for dealing with you know, like just that one plant. If you knew how to use that one plant, you could use it for this many things, including things like uh, salmonella poisoning right. and some things like that. You know, uh, intestinal uh, and uh, you know, antifungal, antimicrobial, and all that. So, um, so I'm I'm big on it, and I'm now, and I have been all along, but now I'm even more so. We need to plant salal and Oregon grape everywhere, down every alleyway, down in Seattle. It's food, it's yeah. medicine, and you know these are things that we we don't need to ignore these plants and, and just and relegate <laughs> them to you know a native plant restoration or um, a garden design. And, and I'm and I'm guessing you are probably the only other person in this entire town that walks down the new trail about 200 feet from where we're sitting now mm-hmm. to all of the landscaped Oregon grape, and you're going yeah. hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that very Harvest is going to be good. <laughs> and Knick I'm like, oh, there's yeah. some nearby Knick <laughs> Quite like, a bit of it. <laughs> like, there's going to be a lot of Oregon grape wine coming in my through my. <laughs> but no, you're yeah. like, I feel like uh, for first aid, like you're they're yeah. talking about, I could walk down from here to the river and pass yeah. by 20 plants that yeah. I could, you know. And, yeah. and and that wasn't like hard, hard to learn. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it just now it's only so many years later, and it's just so infused in my psyche that I can't imagine. Yeah, it's where I turn first, actually. Yeah, even my kids, you know, they get the cut or scrape or whatever out to the yard to get the plantain yeah. or whatever. It's like, and that's oh. a mentality shift. Yeah, to not go straight to the to the first aid box mm-hmm. in the house. So, yeah, yeah, totally. It's, it's all important <laughs> knowledge. And um, and so. Um, what I'm wondering then, you're talking about food and everything, and what's really interesting about that, your can your desire to work with native peoples and teach them, is you're also been running the local farmers market. Mm-hmm. And just so mm-hmm. folks know, we have this nice little quaint town here. It's a one main street town, and if you pull off to the off the side, there's this little side street. And every Tuesday around three o'clock, up go the um, before three o'clock up go the the white festival tents, about maybe twenty, thirty of them. Mm-hmm. And there's local farmers from the valley, and there's people who sell uh, native people. It's a company that sells salmon and meat, and there's uh, and it's a very food based, and not one of these yeah. like you know three quarters of them are crafts, and yeah. there's a couple of vegetables. And it's yeah. it's food and food from our valley. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, are you seeing? Is what you're trying to do with that also trying to create some sort of you know model for people to it or what? Sure. Yeah. That's. Yeah, to me, it's you know I, I've been I left home when I was thirteen. I was part of the Back to the Land movement, and mm. and you know I lived way back. I lived in a place we called the wilderness that we lived cooked over open fires and made our houses out of wow out of. Um, <laughs> did you know that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got to show you some photos. Yeah, and um, we made our houses out of redwood planks and redwood bark, and 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 uh, my bed was sand. You know, a bed of sand and cook and. Uh, um, and I lived that way for several years in that situation. And then we worked at a neighboring ranch where we grew their food that is now part of John Jevons Research Gardens in Northern California. Uh-huh. Um, we grew 15-acre gardens for this nearby um, community. And um, so that um, kind of lent itself. So, But at that time, I was part of that group of, we got to get ready because, you know, it's going to happen. This, mm-hmm. you know, the collapse is going to happen, you know, sort of the, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and that was, you know, 30 something years ago. And at some point you, you kind of have to say, you know, well, life goes on. We have the right to live a joyful life. Um, even though we know that oil is, you know, mm-hmm. depleting and, and the environment is you know, degrading and all these things. We also are alive. And, and so there's, you have to blend those things. So, 
I'm constantly in solution mode. What's solution? Where where can we find solution? And I got involved with permaculture and at the same time was really eyeballing this Carnation Farmers Market, which was a small market at the time. And um, and I joined the Snow Valley Tilth, which is runs the farmers market mm-hmm. and um, is made up of local farmers. And I was so impressed with that organization of people. It's a small group of people, mm-hmm. but so effective. They... These farmers know how to get things done, and they don't talk about it a lot. They say it, and like next week, it's done. And and um, so I started volunteering at that farmers market because I was doing this book, I was teaching, I was doing all the other work. So this was just straight volunteer time for me. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, it's another way I can connect with my community and come down out of my house in the woods because at that time I was living up on the hill, ten miles out of town, and and. Um, so I just sat down there at that, the information booth every week. And I, was, I remember you coming in and you saw me doing the flower, edible flowers yeah, the display. Edible flowers. Well, you still right. give me credit on it for your, on your, <laughs> your uh, website. And um, so I was doing that kind of thing, like just trying to show people some cool stuff, how to make infused herbal honeys and stuff like that for the honey guy and try to promote his sales. And, and um, <laughs> then they asked me the next year if I wanted to be a manager. And I was like, sure, you know, that sounds, you know, if it's a day and a half a week, that sounds fine. And, but, but it's really, for me, that's all about the relevance piece mm-hmm. of, you know, we, we have a connection with these plants, their plants, the garden or the farm at this point, and with local food systems. And, and, you know, people have contacted me to apprentice. I've had people contact me and want to apprentice with me and, and I'll ask them, you know, well, what's your interest? And they're like, well, I'd like to be an Indian. Like, I'd like the Indians where they could just walk in the woods and just be able to survive in the woods. And um, and I'd say, well, you know, my response to that is, well, actually, you know, if you were an Indian walking around alone in the woods, you'd be kind of a dumb Indian. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Some would be wrong because, because actually the tribes here were very complex and intact socially networked communities so you know we live right along this river here this Tolt River Mm -hmm. is named for a fish trap that was there that was owned by a family that was shared by tribes around the region you know that people would come in rent basically essentially rent the fish trap for a day and pay with fish um, for their time to use it that's how the, the fish traps around here were used so it wasn't like everybody had to build their own fish trap or everybody had to make your own basket or everybody had to... You didn't have to know everything because you were part of a complex social system. So same with food. I see in our area here, I don't think we all need to grow all our own food to survive. We have farmers down here in the valley mm-hmm. that are doing a very effective job yeah. of it. And I during that time, I was deciding to become part of the market and the tilth. I was up there on the hill growing these my self-sufficient little garden and ducks and you know all that, working my fanny off and wondering if it was really the most effective use of my time. Mm-hmm. If maybe instead what I should be doing is say, taking a portion, a good portion of that time, and going down the valley and donating my time or trading my time at a farmer and making and and I could enhance. So that that and that to me is a real strong premise for permaculture is that we combine our energies as a community rather than this whole survivalist back to the land right. which was our mentality. We were that, that, that's the mentality I came from. Instead we we get back into social structures like traditional social structures where we share skills and we share resources and so to me that's the farmers this new movement of farmers and farmers markets and the farmers markets is just a small component of 
fixing a very, very broken food system. And, and that's, I think, our number one work in the next, um, uh, and health system. Right. The two combined, and all of those are answered, those problems are answered by the things, the work that you're doing and the work that I'm doing right. and many others, of course. And um, so, you know, I think earlier on, we were, you know, even before this interview, you talked about something about, um, uh, you know, rather than waiting for salute, just jumping right in and, and, and that's my nature. I, I read some things about the whole philosophy, what's going on with the environment, or the whole philosophy, what's going on with peak oil and all that. But all I got to know is it's enough true that it's something to be concerned about. And I want to I do the thing I know I can do, which right. is local and small scale, and something I can actually do something about. And that's the that's farmer's it. That, you you know, know, that's who Kimberly is. And I sometimes see me remember a time when we feel help knowing what we know about mm-hmm. the earth and everything feeling helpless about how big it is. And then, you know, we just came to that realization. It's like, you know what? All we can do is what we can do as long as we're doing a small piece and living our passion and contributing. There's hope that links. And we came to that same realization about food. We used to have a vegetable garden, and it's been years since we've had one. We have a Mm -hmm. small little herb garden Mm -hmm. where we grow some of the plants of medicines that we use, the ones that we don't harvest locally. Other than that, there's an awesome CSA, uh, Community Supported Agriculture Farm in our valley, where we've been belonged to for years. In fact, we belong to one of these for probably a decade now in Hmm. this area. We supplement with the farmer's market, and that's our summer food, pretty much. Yeah, and then you're supporting, you're helping to support a sustainable food system. And I don't mean to say people shouldn't grow their own vegetable gardens, because I, and what I focus on as a market manager I began to realize it's kind of silly for me to grow a big vegetable garden in the summertime because <laughs> I have all this food at the market room. So I, I focus on extended foods. foods. My, I try to extend my season into fall and then have something happening in spring. So right. so I, I just put my winter garden in right now. So, ah, so those those you know that's sort of my yeah. approach at this point. And then and then I grow stuff that I know I'm going to uh, use in bulk. So it might be tomatoes or beans or something if I know I'm going to want to set a bunch of sides. Right. Right. Or garlic. Yeah. Garlic. <laughs> Definitely garlic. Yeah. Gotta have so, garlic. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's, I, you know, people, I don't know, I, 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 people ask me to describe what I do or, you know, I meet people I haven't seen. And, you know, when I was a carpenter, if I run into someone when I was a carpenter, yeah. they actually just absolutely don't know what to say when I tell them what I'm doing um, because it's really hard to encapsulate what I'm doing. And I guess one way that I try to say it is I just, I'm a you know focus on plants, native plants in particular, and people's relationship with them by teaching. You know, I don't know. It's just hard to describe it. So to, for a lot of people, it's it's disconnected, and yet for me, it's all completely connected. But you found a way to take this what you say is hard to explain, and all of your passions and this big idea, and that's rooted in ancient wisdom, and also projects to a sustainable future. Put all that together and somehow make a living from it make all. A living. <laughs> it can be done, folks. It can. Don't think it can't. It's just not as secure as some people right. want it. Um, and yet, um, and yet, when this economic downturn happened, I realized I was more secure than almost anybody I knew by, by virtue of having my finger in many pots. Right. And um, and so I just could sort of direct more energy where I knew it was going to have more long-term effect rather than panic over whether my one job was still going to be funded 
next year. It was right. actually by, but that's that's that does take a fair amount of courage, and I think that's you know a lot of what we're dealing with here is is um, uh, people. Having, I, I, you know, not let alone growing up, but even before I moved to Washington, I'm not even sure if I heard of acupuncture and and, mm-hmm, and, 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 mm-hmm. and people doing herbal remedies and stuff. And here mm-hmm. I am, and 15 years later, and that's my work. Yeah. And um, yeah, there were no jobs in it, and there's no 401k. But mm-hmm. you know, you I just it's like a combination of a passion to get it out to people, and for what else am I going to do with my time? I can't know what I know and not take action. Yeah. Somehow, yeah. it's impossible for me to do that. Yeah. And there has to be some deliberation. You know, I don't have a 401k either. And, um, so then I had to look at, okay, what can I do? And I, one of my big wake-ups... Or a dental plan. Yeah, yeah, one of my big wake-ups was finally reading this article about seniors that are still working. And then, and then I realized, oh, yeah, I'm just never going to stop working. So what am I going to do? What can I do that I can do until I die? Yeah. And one's teaching, right. one's writing, one's... I just began to list out what are the things that I can actually do, uh, you know, for the rest of my life that I love doing and that I could physically do as well. So, and yeah. then part of that's building community around yourself. And and um, so, so, yeah, that's, so uh, it does require some deliberate yeah. effort. It's not just you randomly just sort of go along until right. the final... Thinking you know, about, like, yeah. uh, so for me, acupuncture is kind of like my retirement plan. I actually... I love working, and mm. I don't like having a job, but I love working. No, <laughs> no, and I want to work. You know, I'm fine working to the day I die. You yeah. know, it's. Uh, um, what but, else uh, would you do? I know what else, I mean, and <laughs> I would do something I'm into for the rest. Yeah, of my if life. work is what you love, then what else would you do? Right. I mean, I'm not going to go hang out on the beach somewhere. No, it's never been my focus. So, um, <laughs> if I did, I'd be making baskets or something <laughs> and selling them to the local tourists. <laughs> <laughs> Or golfing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, you got that Scottish yeah. background. Yeah. I think you'd have some golfing. <laughs> well, you know, you know, Heidi, we, we could just talk for hours, I'm sure, but and we could do it again sometime. We can. Um, and so, once again, folks, uh, you can visit Heidi at Heidi Bohan B O H A N dot com, and People of Cascadia dot com has more details on uh, this incredible book, People of Cascadia, Pacific Northwest Native American History, where you can also buy the book, like I said, peopleofcascadia.com. And I always recommend going to the author's site and ordering uh, because they always make more money that way. And we want to support our local information farmers. <laughs> um, like I bought one from you in the post office parking lot. Yeah, that's right. I was like, I want one. I was like, give me one. I have a little sign on my car. <laughs> exactly. So, Heidi, once again, Heidi Bohan, thank you so much for spending uh, time with us today on Nerd Radio. I appreciate it. Well, thanks, John. It was really fun. I really enjoyed it. Nerd Radio on NerdMentor.com is a production of LearningHerbs.com. Visit LearningHerbs.com for free herbal lessons, including Herb Mentor News, Home Remedy Secrets, and Supermarket Herbalism. You'll also find the Herbal Medicine Making Kit and our board game Wildcraft. Herb Mentor Radio. Copyright LearningHerbs.com. All rights reserved. Thanks so much for listening.